Where did the time go? I hope you're doing fine because this is the start of season nine. It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee. Being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After formally connecting with the adoption community, I recognize the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. My next guest answered the question, who am I, by including on her list a mother, wife, entrepreneur, energy worker, storyteller, teacher, mystic, marketer, connector, curator, manifesting generator, and spiritual explorer. I enjoyed saying all of that and would like to add author and podcaster. She is the host of the Everyday Mystic podcast and I accepted her invitation to be a future guest on her show. Her name is Corissa St. Laurent. She was born in Korea and adopted at the age of three. As a transracial adoptee, she grew up in New Hampshire with no one who looked, sounded, or acted anything like what she knew. It created a deep sense of abandonment and uncertainty about her identity. She adapted and in the process locked all of her needs hurts, and traumas away, where they wouldn't interfere with the success of her life. Thankfully, she explored different metaphysical, religious, and spiritual philosophies. This curiosity carried her bludgeoned spirit to a study abroad office at the University of California, Irvine, and on to an epic adventure with an unintended spiritual awakening. Carissa considers herself a soul guide, who is on a mission for people to light up their lives so they can light up the world. In this episode, we unpack modalities like breathwork, meditation, story healing, and the importance of unlocking your inner wisdom. She shares a part of her relinquishment, adoption, search, and reunion journey that proved to give her new answers about her beginnings. Allow me to introduce you to someone who has traveled around the sun for a total of 50 times, and has at least those many lessons learned over those years to show for it. Her mission has led to years of healing, self-inquiry, and a deep exploration of the oneness she experienced in her initial awakening. She is of the belief that we can change our future by rethinking our past. Well, Carissa, I'm so happy to have this conversation with you, and I... We'll start by asking, how are you doing in Arkansas? I'm doing so well. We moved here about two months ago and feel so at home. We love the where we're living. Uh, we love the community and, and just our lifestyle here and really happy. Thank you for asking. Well, that's good. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. And so I know you're a speaker, a podcast host, and a published author. You have to tell me how to get a copy of your book. I couldn't find it on Amazon. Soon to be published author. So that's why. It hasn't um, released yet. I'm going to be releasing it in the fall. So it's available for advanced 
reader copies at this point, I'm going to be happy to send you that. Oh, great. And it's called 50 Years Around the Sun, 50 Life Lessons from the Seat of the Soul. How did you come up with that title? It started out actually as a blog post idea. I turned 50 in May of this year, and I was, you know, was feeling like an epic. I mean, it's a big milestone for a lot of people, right? But for me, it was and has been this really profound spiritual shift for me into the wise woman archetype. And I was feeling that so much. I wanted to honor it and, and just talk about it and share lessons that I've learned along the way. And it was going to be, you know, 50 lessons from a life well lived, or I think of the original blog post title was just 50 lessons after 50 years. And, you know, it was something like that. And, and I was, I was starting to write it it channeled through me. And then I wrote this thing and I wrote this introduction and I was like, Oh, you know, this is, this is, I mean, it's a little book, but I'm like, this is, this is a book. This to me, isn't just a blog post. And so I decided to position it as a book. And as soon as I did, the title came through. Mm. Yeah. You know, I'll be leaving my fifties next year. And mm. I remember when I turned 59 in May, I oh, thought, yeah. yeah, I thought I was just getting used to the 50s <laughs> and I'm leaving them next year. So, yeah, I'm so interested in reading your books. I look forward to getting it. And so what day in May were you born? The 31st. Ah, How about you? May 3rd. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and three is my favorite number. I recently had a guest on who... I knew she was born in May. I didn't know what day. So that was the first question I asked her. And it turned out we were both were sharing the same day of May 3rd. So that was one of birthdays. Yeah, that was like a cool, what I call synchronicity. So I consider you to be a spiritual teacher. When I listen to your podcast, The Everyday Mystic, I've listened to a, a couple of episodes that's what I consider you to be. Do you consider yourself to be that? I do. However, I've not used that title per se. Um, it's not a, a title I've put out in the world, but um, I've been wrestling with that a little bit of, you know, what do I call this work, this thing that I'm doing in the world? So it's been an interesting, I would say, last six months or so of feeling into that. I love the sounds of of it in my ears and in my heart. I've always considered myself a teacher and have done teach I've taught in every realm that I've actually practiced in. So it's a very natural role for me to take. Uh, so for for every career I've had, I've parlayed it into teaching that thing. Uh, so when I first started my, my professional life, I was a hands-on healer and energy worker and uh, became a wellness consultant. And uh, that profession, that world for me, I wasn't as interested in doing 
the actual one-on-one -on -one work, I wanted to teach it. And so I did. And I went and, you know, I taught the, the body work and the energy work through a school and started teaching through workshops. And uh, when I pivoted and went into marketing, which became, you know, the, the longest career that I've had or profession that I've had marketing and business development, I, I same thing parlayed it into teaching, doing workshops and doing uh, talks and presentations on the subject, teaching at universities. And uh, that to me is where I, I feel, you know, it's, it's my, where my gifts are and where therefore my passion lies and where I really light up is, is in that place. So it, it's natural to me then to take this world of, of spirituality and, and helping people talk uh, about the soul and helping them in this way uh, to be doing it, I guess, from that, that teacher's standpoint. Yes, I know your website. So impressive. I got that impression that you most certainly are a spiritual teacher. When you're on a mission, as you wrote, for people to light up their lives so they can light up the world, I feel that, that sense of, of being someone that has learned tools that they want to share with other people so that they can live their best life and impact the world. You know, I've read a lot of books through the years from teachers, what I would consider spiritual teachers, that have a message similar to yours. So that's why I wanted to ask you about that. Well, thank you for reflecting that back to me. And it is now I, I, as I sit here, it's so funny to me <laughs> that that title never came in for me. I'm like, am I a spiritual coach? Am I a soul guide? Am I a, <laughs> and I've, I've, I've kind of gone back and forth between oh, spiritual mentor. And all of these things are similar to spiritual teacher, but um, that particular title hadn't really come through and, and maybe I was resisting it in some way, but uh, I fully accept that anointment, Jennifer. I love, <laughs> I love that you shared that with me, and I just I'm laughing because it's so uh, obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, see, I believe that we're all teachers and students. Yes, I I do believe that, and our gifts are different. And so, when I right. think of spirituality, I think of of really leaning into what path or what is it that I need to be doing to continue to grow, continue to heal. Um, so it's bigger than religion, right? It's really taking notice of what I want to put out into the world and what I want to receive back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when I think of, well, I, I'll start from here. When I listened to your episode, I think it, it aired today, uh, with Jenna Wilson, Learning to Love and Listen to Your Inner Child, Oh, so much resonated with me as I look at, take inventory, we'll say, and even investigate my journey that started like in the 90s. I was reading so many books by authors that call themselves spiritual teachers and spiritual guides. And, and this word spirituality took on a whole new meaning for me. 
So like when Jana mentioned Brian Weiss, his book, Many mm-hmm. Lives, Many Masters, I, I've read all of his books. And the first one I read was Messages from the Masters. I just remember listening to her talk about her journey and the both of you in conversation. And I'm thinking, yeah, these are spiritual teachers, no doubt about it. So I don't want to spend too much of our time together on that. But I think it's, yeah, it's worth giving some attention to. So I love what you said about, you know, that we're all teachers and students. And I believe that 100% as well. And when when you read uh, my book at the end, I talk about that in different words, but talking about that my hope or my intention of the lessons is to provide this information that then helps to inform people's experiences. And then when they have these experiences, they'll then gain new knowledge to share with others that will create experiences for them. And it's this cycle that we get into of of teaching and leading versus, you know, learning and being guided and then going back to that. And you could look at it as also this consuming and producing cycle uh, and sharing and receptive cycle. So all of that, that cycle, which is like a breath, you know, it's like this exhale versus inhale. It's so very fundamental to who we are, how we live. If you were to look at it from a breath standpoint, you can't just take the inhales. <laughs> you have right. to exhale. Yeah. Too. And you have to go through that um, cycle in order for that to be complete and order for you to get life from it. And, and that's how I look at the, the teaching learning cycle as well. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes me think about facilitations that you do, which include breath work, right? There's meditation, there's visualization, and story healing, I was like, I got to ask Carissa about story healing. Can you explain that? Yes, it is a process that really developed out of writing. So not this book that we're talking about, but I'm also working on a longer book, which is a self-help memoir. It uh, chronicles my journey of uh, going back to Korea my birth family search, um, but also my life stories of these spiritual awakenings I've had and really the culmination of uh, my, well, not culmination because it's not ended yet, but the realization that what I've always been searching for is that inner self, that inner wise self, my soul, and coming home to that which is what this journey has was all about. And so it is uh, a longer book. I'm not yet done. And it's taken on a lot of forms. I've been writing it since I uh, went on that birth family search, which was 12 years ago. So it's been a long process. But the process is what it is about for me. It's not about getting a book published or getting this book out in the world for my accolades or whatever. is really about this process of writing these stories in order to heal and in order to work through them so that I can transform them. So that's what story healing is all about. It is what I encourage people to do, even if you don't want to write a full-blown book, um, but to write and to write out your stories 
so that you can at one uh, step examine them and then go deeper into the impact they've had on you and then start to actually rewrite them. And this is where we, we get we get to move into what is in the spiritual world. Well, I guess this is, this is part of both the spiritual and in the newer sciences world of quantum leaping and quantum jumping of where we actually can change the future into new possibilities based on how we start to actually rethink our past. And when we do that, we are freeing up ourselves from that story the story that we are abandoned, not worthy, unloved, not valued, abused, whatever the things that may have happened to us in our life, we, by telling ourselves that story, we just continue to victimize or re-victimize, re-traumatize ourselves. And uh, story healing is about taking those stories and rewriting, not changing the facts, but changing the impact that those facts had on you and, and freeing ourselves from that enslavement. Wow, that was so good. Thank you. Mm. Thank you for all of that. Change the future by rethinking our past. Yeah, I like that. I uh, wanted to, to talk a little bit about breath work and meditation. What breath work or what exercise would you recommend to all of us? That you do. There's a, been a few different things. So I, I would say if you're new to any type of breath work, and I'm not a breath work like master. What I've learned about and what I facilitate with breath work is very individualized. So I don't go about it where I've learned this method. And I've been certified in this method, and this is therefore the method that I teach. And this is true of everything that I facilitate. It is about, first and foremost, tapping people into their own inner wisdom so that they can then guide themselves through the process that is right for them. Because we're all individual. We all not only are unique in our souls and in our human experiences, but we're unique at the, the stage we're at. And then we could also break it down to the day. Let's say you're coming into a, an event or a retreat or something that I'm leading. Even that particular day and moment in time, you're in a unique place that is different from where everyone else might be. So for me, the the key to people unlocking their own pathway. And I've actually recently changed it from the seat of the soul on my book to the throne of the soul. Mm. Because to me, I see it very much as that place where you are leading and guiding yourself from this royal seat. Wow. And <laughs> that place is where you know exactly how to, to take your next step and your next breath and your next whatever move it is where you understand that this is what is right for me in this moment, not that thing that someone else is telling me. So me as a, a teacher or a guide or mentor, I am not here to tell you how to breathe. 
I'm here to tap you into your inner wisdom so that you yourself can tell you how to breathe. Mm. And so that would be what a facilitation looks like. Um, It is that everybody is getting into their own rhythm and into their own flow. There's certain, you know, certain fundamentals, you know, of of, uh, doing some slower, deeper breaths together so that we can really feel what that feels like to take in breath. And so I guide people in some fundamentals like that of where uh, laying or sitting, whichever is most comfortable for you, you put your hands on your belly and feel the breath come in. Because most people breathe from their chest. And I I was, and still am, a chest breather until I (laughs) tap in and really get uh, and feel. And this is why we do these practices, because we are so hardwired through so much practice in another way that you get habitualized in those ways and then you don't think about it and then you realize oh i've been breathing from my chest this whole time and it took a therapist pointing that out to me many years ago that i breathed from my chest for me to even realize that i did it and then realize then what are the effects of that it's shallow breathing and then what are the effects of shallow breathing it is uh, a heightened state of anxiety and what is the effects of a heightened state of anxiety oh it's that i feel uh, jumpy and then what are the effects of being jumpy oh it's that i am not able to fully relax into a situation and what does that lead to it means that i am not fully able to take in my surroundings. And, you know, you just go down this rabbit hole of what are all of those impacts. And so she pointed this out to me. That's when I really started to focus on uh, doing this deeper belly breath. So if you look at your, or, you, you know, if you've ever looked at the anatomy of the body and you see the lungs where they sit and and then you see that the diaphragm is what allows our lungs to contract and the diaphragm sits right below the lungs and separates you know your lung cavity from or your thoracic cavity from your abdominal cavity so your abdominal cavity is where you would want to put your hands in this really early stages of of just getting in touch with your breath and put your hands on that abdominal cavity your belly and just feel the breath come in. So you take in a breath and allow your belly to expand like a balloon. And this could be hard if you are a, a chest breather and that's where you normally breathe from. And you just allow, as you inhale, that belly to blow up like a balloon. And as you exhale, gently push on the belly to allow a full exhale too, because you don't, the the inhale and the exhale, just like we were talking about earlier, are both equally important. You do not wanna have shallow exhales either, as much as you don't wanna have shallow inhales. Mm. So we just spend time with that. And then with each, each inhale, you'll feel your belly being able to expand even further and expand even further. And what that's doing when you're expanding your abdominal cavity, your 
lungs are then able to drop down and then therefore you're able to take in more oxygen or take in more breath, everything, not just oxygen, but all the gases and everything that, and then the, the chi and all the energy that's coming in through that breath. So by opening up the abdominal cavity, the diaphragm is dropping and then therefore the lungs have more room to expand and then take in more breath. Mm. I really appreciate you sharing that your therapist made you aware of how you were breathing. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm often thinking about how in the moment and present I am with my awareness of things. And I think that it's like it's so important to be aware. That's like the first step. When I think about a book I read by Eckhart Tolle, and now moving into meditation, when I think about A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, uh, who I had the opportunity to meet in person in Chicago many years ago, who did an exercise on meditation, it was the first time that it was, it occurred to me that this, this kind of meditation that he was leading us in was a good fit for me because Meditation can seem kind of scary to people, I think, or something that maybe they feel like they wouldn't be good at. And up until meeting him, I thought that was me, like meditation isn't for me. You want to talk a little bit about maybe the different types of meditation? And again, it probably is what you said earlier. You you have to find what works best for you, like when you were talking about the breathing and how did you put it? Unlock your, your inner wisdom about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what do you have to say about meditation? I was the same way, Jennifer, of feeling like, oh, I can't meditate or I am um, to my mind is too busy to meditate or, oh, I'm not a meditator. I had a lot of uh, resistant thoughts and limiting beliefs around meditation. I and mean, I don't really know where those came from. Honestly, I think that there's somewhat probably it came somewhat from the prescriptive nature of a lot of meditation practices of where it is done in a very specific way like if you picture a lot of uh, zen buddhist monk meditation and that type of silent meditation it's very rigorous it is you sitting in a specific position in an uncomfortable position for some people I happen to be able to sit that way comfortably, but that's uncomfortable. My husband can't sit with his legs crossed on the ground comfortably. So it's that, um, and then eventually it does become uncomfortable the longer you're sitting there in that position. But I think it's that that prescriptive nature that that is shared by a lot of meditation practices and teachers that it is getting past the uncomfortability. It's getting past that, the noises in the room and the um, getting past all of that. And then you enter into this state and it's like a a reward for the discomfort, Mm. which is very Buddhist in, in, in general. It's like you're ascending the, the suffering. And when you do, you're then therefore becoming closer to enlightenment And I've always had a a sort of love-hate relationship with Buddhist philosophy because of that, that we are 
and have to suffer in order to uh, or have to accept suffering as part of the formula for enlightenment rather than just saying, you know, yeah, and, and, and yes, there's suffering in the world. I've suffered. You've suffered. There's so much suffering in the world. I'm not here to claim that there's no suffering, but that in a practice like meditation or in, within a spiritual practice, why mimic that human suffering within it in order to then achieve something greater that spiritual enlightenment and to me there doesn't need to be that that suffering now what suffering and discomfort can do for people in a very real way is drop them deeply into their body because in order for them to ascend the suffering they have to you know drop deeply in accept it and then let go of it so there is benefit to to that, uh, but I don't think that's the only way. And and that's true of all of these practices that are out there. Uh, meditation being, you know, one method of us tapping into the divine. Mm-hmm. It's one method of us tuning into the the greater oneness. There are, I believe just so many ways to to do that. Uh, So there's what we would maybe consider meditation that silences the mind and, you know, the monkey mind and the chatter of uh, stressful thoughts, limiting beliefs, uh, the kind of meditation that you would, I would say is the probably the most recognized form or the the, what people most think of when they think of meditation oh it's quieting the mind quieting the mind shutting out those thoughts and that's one type Um, but then there's meditation that's very active where your mind is very actively creating new thoughts new beliefs you're visualizing you're going into different realms you are traveling um, through that meditation then there's what we call more of a, you know, waking or a walking meditation. And that might be done through a lot of movement. But you're in this meditative state of repetition and doing something. So it might be walking. It might be for someone cooking or knitting or just doing something that's very repetitive that for that person doesn't require any thought. It's a no thought process. They are in the flow in mm. that activity. So in that, that, therefore, they can just, their mind relaxes and they enter into different brainwave states. And that's really what meditation does is that uh, it opens us to, to different brainwave states to where we are moving out of the, the typical beta of, you know, waking, alert, you know, on top, you know, all, 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 completely aware of all of our surroundings. And we can open into these other states and other, therefore, brain waves are occurring during these other states that we then tap into other knowing. We can connect to other realms. We can deepen our our own experience of our oneness this way and connect to guidance that's 
that comes from ex outside of ourselves. So this is all done within meditation, maybe not all within one particular, you know, meditative uh, practice, but if you meditate, those are all different things you can do. Mm -hmm. So meditation can look and feel and be different ways. It can provide different benefits and it's, it's not a one size fits all practice at all. Right. Yeah. That's what Eckhart Tolle taught me because he had us in a room just real quickly for my listeners to know uh, what the experience was. He had us in a room. It might've been a hundred of us in this auditorium and he had us to just close our eyes there's like a humming sound, slight humming sound that we were able to pick up on. And he said, just focus on that. And you'll notice that your mind will wander to something and just be aware and come back. Just keep being aware and coming back. And that was the form of meditation. And from that day to this, it has really been pretty empowering for me to practice that. I don't do it every day, but I think what I've been leaning into or learning more about is just being completely present in the moment and being aware, aware of how I'm feeling. If it's anxiety, whatever it is, just noticing it. And I think you talked about that. In fact, I know you did with Jana. The yeah. noticing and the awareness is, is so huge. And this is where we start to really go in and, reach and live from that throne of the soul because the soul is this higher consciousness it is that part of us that is has that awareness awareness of yourself doing things and oh oh you know she's starting to her her mind starting to wander <laughs> you're aware of that and you see that happening and you bring it back mm -hmm. and being in awareness of self and what you're doing is where we start to lean more into that that living from that throne and being and living from our uh, souls knowing and who we are as a soul and not living from really the human existence aspect of ourselves which is typically just very reactionary and uh, you are responding a lot rather than being and, and, and being creative and being uh, proactive and being on that side of things. And so when you, uh, when you start to, to trust and do more of those practices uh, and start to trust that awareness and listen to it, you start to tune in to that inner, uh, the, the inner self, the, we could call it soul self, your higher self, whatever you want to call it to be able to operate from that place right. instead of just going, Oh yeah, I know that about me or I know that about existence that, you know, I'm more than just my body, but uh, it's more than, it's more than just knowing and awareness. It's actually living from that place and making therefore decisions from that place and operating your body and your mind and yourself from that place and so it's what the practices help us do is to get into that place i call it you know calibrating to the soul you are calibrating your human self to your soul self 
Thank you for that. I know that you were born in Seoul, Korea, and you're a transracial adoptee in reunion for over a decade, right? Yes. Yeah, it's been about 12 years or so. So wherever you want to start and however much you want to share about your relinquishment and adoption journey would be great. In my whole life, just like I think many adoptees, I was told something different than what the truth is. And I don't say that I have the entire truth, but I, I certainly have more of the truth now that I've met my birth mother and and learned uh, of my, my story through her. Um, but my parents, my adoptive parents were told that I was abandoned at a police station, naked with no information. So I was given a name, given a birth date, and they were told to, you know, this is all made up information. So you'll just, you know, give her information, you'll give her her identity, essentially. And that was the story they were told. That was the story I was always told. So therefore, that's the story I accepted as truth. When I was 35 years old, my husband and I were um, getting married and decided to go to Korea and Japan for our honeymoon. And when we decided those locations, my husband said, you know, well, we've got to get in touch with your orphanage. And I was like, you what? Like, you actually want to do that? Like, visit my orphanage on our honeymoon? And he was like, absolutely. (laughs) So he was really my uh, guardian angel in that moment to guide me back to or guide me into the birth search because I was still resistant to it at that time, even though I was curious, uh, I was still, I still needed the push and he, uh, he was that, that push for me. So we contacted the orphanage and I sent out an email requesting a meeting and it took a couple of months for them to get back to me. The final line of the emails, we have information on your birth mother. And I was like, what? How? Where Where do you get? Oh, my gosh, this is incredible. Like, where did you get this information? We've never had any information. I've never known I, that, about her at all in any way. So I ended up rattling back tons of questions to them and not hearing anything. So months go by, I not getting a response from them. You know, we were in the midst of you know, planning our wedding and all that. So I just let it go and said, okay, well, we're going to be there soon. We all, I'll get all these questions answered then. Flash forward, we're in Korea, in Seoul. We go and have this meeting and the social worker pulls out a file and proceeds to tell me all of this information about my birth mother, about my relinquishment. I wasn't abandoned at a police station naked with no information. I was uh, I was brought. She didn't know by who. She said she thinks it was maybe my mother's sister that brought me to the actual orphanage, but I was brought by a family member or a friend. Um, and she had all of this information about my my mother, her profession, her name, where she, like the neighborhood she lived in, about why she gave me up, and information on me, my name, and, and I was just, just floored. And so the, the way that it works, at least in Korea, is that they do not give you your birth record or your actual rec, my adoption record. So I had to write all of this down. I couldn't get a photocopy of my adoption records. It's sealed from me uh, or it's it's confidential to, I think they're protecting 
the birth uh, parents. So I just had to write everything down that she was telling me. And the, the most infuriating thing was, is that she would tell me a few things and stop as I was writing. And then she would say, what else would you like to know? Hmm. And so I would have to ask her more questions to get more information. And then again, stop. What else would you like to know? And I'd be like, ah, just tell me everything. Right. Because you got to <laughs> know exactly what questions to ask. Yeah. That's yes. Very... Yeah. So, I mean, thankfully, I did have my husband there because I'm in this like freeze state. I'm just in this like panic state of I, I need to ask the right questions. I don't know if I'm asking all the questions. I would turn to my husband and I just look at him and, and say like, you know, what else should I ask? And and then he would come up with a question. And it was a very out of body experience. I literally was out of my body. I remember watching this whole scene from like a bubble above the, the, the room, which actually looked like an interrogation room. It was like this little teeny conference room that was super bright, like fluorescent lights, very bright in there, uh, just artificial lighting. Not, I don't remember there being any windows in there, and it was very hot. It was summer in Seoul, and uh, or the end of summer, and it was just very hot and humid, and they don't have either, didn't have AC at all, or just not strong air conditioning. I feel like she honestly shared more with me than maybe she was supposed to share with me. And that she did that by stopping and saying, like, what else do you want to know? And then by me, by the virtue of me asking, that meant she had to tell me to some degree. And, and that's, it was either the, the cultural way of doing it or as a policy way of doing it. But it felt like this, this is the way it had to be in order for me to get the information. So that led to me knowing all of this stuff about myself that I never knew. And I stopped at, at one point after she told me my name and my birth date and she had a picture of me. I, I stopped and said, you know, I don't understand, you know, why were my parents, my adoptive parents not told any of this? Like, why, why were they told, given, you know, why was I given a new name when I came to the orphanage, a fake name? And she said, well, you know, this is where it gets a little confusing. She said, when I was brought to the orphanage, the girl, the person that my parents were set to adopt, she said, I don't know exactly what happened, but something must have happened to her of where she couldn't be sent. So you were sent in her place. Your file was just stuck in her file. So everything my parents were told about the person they were getting was not me. That was just a made up person or it was a real person who, like she said, couldn't be adopted out for some reason. And I was just sent to the place of her without even being fully processed because she did say nor normal adoptions. I guess what was policy back then was that they would need to keep a uh, relinquished child for a year. I had only been there for a month. And then by the time I was sent, it was about three months later that I was sent um, in the place of this person that my parents thought they were adopting. And they didn't know any different. They just received me going, okay, well, 
she doesn't look like the picture they sent, but I guess they're telling me, these officials are telling me this is our daughter. So they just took me home. And that there and there we go. Mm, would you say you had a healthy childhood? It was uh, you know, it's in retrospect, no. While experiencing my childhood, it was it was it was it was a mix. You know, I had a a two parent home. I grew up in, you know, upper middle class. Those types of things were taken care of. Uh, I had a brother. My my family had uh, had a son, and he was a year older than me, and he adored me, and I felt very loved by him. I felt very loved by my parents, but they cannot and could not do anything to replace what I had lost and replace the trauma or heal that trauma because they didn't have the tools to address it. They didn't know what to do. The only thing they knew to do was to just keep loving me. And that only goes so far. Um, and then, you know, there were some other things within my adoptive family that weren't great. You know, my parents ended up getting divorced um, when I was 14. My mother was unstable. And, you know, just those things that come from any, you know, particular family were just on top of the losses that I already experienced and the trauma I had experienced. Um, one thing that my parents told me, I only knew it as a story until I actually experienced it through some inner work that I've done was that when I was first brought home to them, I would wake up or I would awaken through screaming, crying in the night, but I wasn't awake and they couldn't wake me up. So I would be asleep screaming and crying and unable to be woken in the night. I would be experiencing these night terrors during the day. If you see pictures of me at the time, just this happy, smiling child, I look healthy, I look happy, but I was obviously very fractured and traumatized, um, which, you know, that, that self, those hidden and locked away parts of me, I didn't deal with until after my childhood. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I know we met through Simon Ben, host of Thriving Adoptees, and I just want to ask you what has been rewarding and or challenging about being better connected to the community? It's been interesting because I was not at all connected to the adoptee community until I did, I, until I opened up my birth family search. And this was very much a reflection of not wanting to see myself as an adoptee and not wanting to see myself as different, wanting to just fully lock that away that, oh no, that, yeah, that's just something that happened and I'm, I'm fine. I'm this, I'm this person <laughs> and I am here. And, and that's what protected me and saved me from a lot of self-destruction but it isn't a long-term strategy. 
So when I opened up the birth family search, it was really healing for me to hear and meet other adoptees who had similar stories, felt similar ways, could just by being in their presence know that we were, that we shared and and have a, a shared kinship that's unique to us in our experience. This was very true of going to an adoptee, a Korean adoptee conference where I met adoptees from all over the world who all were Korean by birth, by uh, heritage, by how, you know, their appearance. And yet, you know, this one spoke Swedish and this one spoke, you know, with an Australian accent. And then, there, you know, there's a bunch of us that American and it was wild to have that experience with an international group of people who all grew up feeling like I did, feeling American, feeling like their country of adoption and feeling no different than that from from a standpoint, but then feeling completely different, always being in between cultures, that they are not, you know, fully American and they're not at all Korean, but they look at it and they have, you know, some of them even had memories because they were adopted later in life. I don't have any memories from Korea, but it was just an incredible experience to be among people where you didn't even have to say anything and you knew like, oh yeah, I see you sister. I see you brother. Like we're, we are, and we do share this very unique experience and that is our, you know, that is that unique identity. So I can see why a lot of adoptees very uh, hard line identify as an adoptee because it's like, oh, I finally feel at home in this identity because I never felt fully American. I never felt fully Korean or whatever it might be of their country of origin. And so I now feel, oh, this is my identity. And I felt welcomed into that. I felt very embraced by by that but at the same time also felt outside of that as well and didn't feel like I could fully hang my hat on the adoptee identity either and that's been my own journey of just really separating myself from all earthly identities and that's just been my soul's journey to come back home to that just not being any of my roles and identities. And, you know, for me, the standout ones are, you know, my job. I'm, a, you know, a marketing executive, my roles at home, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, um, my self as a, uh, in the spiritual world, a teacher, guide, uh, you know, any, and then of course the big one, the adoptee of identifying with that. And, and the, what I consider over identification with these earthly roles really keep us in a state of disconnect mm-hmm. from who we really are. Yeah, and, and that's when we suffer, story. right? That's when we suffer, mm-hmm. when we over-identify or we are attached to any of those roles. Right, right. And it's something that we, it's something we do in life. It's not what we be, you know, what we are. Mm-hmm. And... I felt like within the adoptee community, there was a lot of over-identification with the role. And I understand why, just like I explained, I think, you know, it's you finally have an identity 
that you can really uh, cling to and attach to and be be because you felt so fractured and in between and it, it lost and so i totally get why someone would but um it just wasn't my path to be um that way and so it you know therefore i haven't i would say really gone deep, super deep into the adoptee community in that respect but absolutely love conversations with other adoptees and always and meeting them and, and spending time together because of that shared experience yeah i enjoy it as well and Carissa, I'm so glad you wrote your book and I get to read it this year. And and of course that you started your podcast, The Everyday Mystic. It's it's so well done. I love the music, by the way. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, I really am enjoying it. And I guess in closing, is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? Mm. I want to share you know i guess just a follow on to what i was just saying and you know in, in speaking to other adoptees that might listen to your podcast that this experience of being a a quote unquote adoptee which is then therefore tied and linked to this story of being relinquished or abandoned which is therefore typically tied to the story of being unwanted and unworthy and unloved is just a story and that story is one that we can work with and look at differently that this was an experience that when healed can teach and has and is a, just a glorious set of lessons to become what you're really meant to become here in this lifetime. I believe that we as adoptees went through that as an initiation to become something beyond it. So what's beyond that for you? You know, what is beyond the pain and the suffering and the hurt and the loss and beyond the feelings of unworthiness and abandonment what's beyond that and i urge anybody that adoptees specifically who have felt that way through the experiences that they've suffered to see themselves and to sit with themselves outside of that pain and suffering embrace it and hold it close because it's something that forged who we are but if you're not stepping into who you really are and just living from that place it will devour you and i would encourage anybody who's feeling that way to just take that one little step and it doesn't need to be this huge leap of outside of your comfort zone it can be small steps to understanding the self outside of those stories and as you start to do that you start to just see the, the bigger picture and then you get to live uh, a much different life than what you may be feeling now thank you yes i see a part of your work is helping people to discover their life's purpose and it is a beautiful thing when 
when that can happen in one's life uh, sooner rather than later. So I will include your, your beautiful website, a link to your beautiful website in the show notes. And anything you want me to include, I will certainly do that. And I just thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's been wonderful. Oh, it's been such a pleasure, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me on. I loved hearing the supportive nature of Carissa's husband, who gave her the nudge to search for her biological family. He was her person that helped ask the right questions when in the room with someone who held a file of her start in life. It's frustrating when anyone holds and knows important information about an adoptee from them when they are strongly seeking it. As adopted people, why wouldn't we want to know what happened to us when we were dependent upon all the adults involved to give us the truth about our introduction in Chapter 1. Carissa knows how to pivot. That resonates with me. I have pivoted many times, and the results most often prove to be a guiding force. She pivoted from healing and wellness as a professional path and started a marketing agency to help other entrepreneurs grow and promote their companies. She guides audiences to see themselves and their way forward. Carissa gives them the encouragement to take the next step in their work or personal life, to tap into their inner wisdom. I look forward to reading her book upon its publication this year. I could stand to learn more than a few more life lessons. I urge you to check out her podcast if you're the least bit interested in being inspired today and in the days to come. Lastly, allow me to read a section from Carissa's beautiful website, carissasaintlaurent.com. Life can be messy. We're taught to keep pushing forward even when we don't know where we're going. I teach you how to come back around to yourself, to discover what you're truly made of, to find purpose, joy, and love so you can walk your path and light up your life. Thank you, Carissa, for taking the precious gift of time to have this conversation with me. I felt the ease of our chat and how we seem to effortlessly flow from one subject to the next. Your willingness to share some of the tools that have worked for you over the years and having positioned yourself to help others is what I call giving back in a big way. I look forward to future conversations about spirituality and how the doors seem to fly open when we align with our life's purpose. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, visit jenniferdianeghoston.com. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give, hopefully, a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I trust you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is still the very best way for the show to grow. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a monthly donation of at least $5 or a one-time amount that works for you at patreon.com forward slash land. Thank you for being here.